Welcome to the 117th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Andrew Mayer, author of the Society of Steam Trilogy. His latest novel is Power Under Pressure. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Andrew Mayer, author of the Society of Steam Trilogy, The Falling Machine, Hearts of Smoke and Steam, and his latest book, Power Under Pressure, which was just published. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Sure. Sure. Well, as we get going, I wondered if you could just read the first page or two of your new novel, Power Under Pressure. Sure. I'd be glad to. All right. I'll, uh, I'll start at the beginning. Uh, chapter one, Spiritus Sanctus. Emilio Armando pushed back his hat and mopped the sweat from his brow. While his workshop was a perfect place to work in the winter months, the change of seasons had transformed his beloved space into a sweatbox. May had been relatively gentle, but now the last vestiges of spring were disappearing, and the sun was rising earlier and higher day by day, beating down longer and longer on the wooden and iron train car that contained his steam-powered machines. Without some modifications, he'd be completely unable to work in the studio by day, and would instead be relegated to spending only the nights inside. Hidden and gathering dust in a nearby cupboard drawer were the extensive plans he had put together to allow him to regulate the temperature all year round, with the obvious exception of the infernal temperatures that often arrived in July and August. Any day where the mercury topped the 100-degree mark, the heat would be impossible to escape from. And the arrival of a steam engine and other materials that he had liberated from the theater mechanique after the tragedy only added to the problem. Although the main boiler was being kept outside, it would ultimately power an array of vents and fans that might allow him to work in an environment where the bulk of his day wasn't spent wringing out his handkerchief. So far, that hadn't happened. Ever since he'd first seen Vincent's workshop out in the garden behind the theater, Emilio had harbored a secret dream of converting his own workplace into one of equal grandeur. Of course, he would have never imagined it would be possible for him to afford the equipment. But it had turned out that owning a junkyard had allowed him to gather up almost all the valuable material from the condemned building as scrap. Even the cost of hauling it back on the ferry had been such that he had been forced to sell some of it to simply pay for the transport costs. Still, he was now in possession of not only a massively powerful steam engine, but latches and but lathes and drills that he could have once only dreamed of. <clears throat> and yet all the new equipment had left his once perfect little workshop a shambles, and getting it back together was a project in itself. Like the old tale of the monkey's paw, having all your dreams come true was turning out to be far more of a curse than a blessing. The fact that it had risen from the same tragedy that had disfigured his sister only made the irony sharper. There had been such a cost in blood, the price paid by both Vincent and his sister. Emilio squinted and shook his head with a single violent nod as he tried to break the connection between these machines and Viola's scarred face. It had been weeks since the accident, but when he closed his eyes, he could still see her the way that she had been when the wounds had been fresh, the huge gashes in her flesh, like a piece of meat from the butcher. But finding some good in that bad did not make him a monster. Letting out a sound that landed perfectly between a grunt and a sigh, he sat himself back down at his workbench and picked up one of the metal rings he had machined the previous night. He dropped it down over a set of metal pins sticking up from the object strapped to the table in front of him. There was no mistaking that it had been designed as a long metal limb, and the metal collar had been put into a position where a human might have a shoulder. It was a tight fit, but it had been very precise with his measurements, and with the application of a little oil, he managed to shuffle it back and forth until it set firmly in place against the armature. When he was sure it was fully down, he gave the ring another turn, looking to find where the catch was supposed to lock it into place, and instead it slipped free. Damn it, he said, surprising even himself with the choice to say that word in English. Frustrated by his stupidity, Emilio tried to wrestle the metal back into place. When that didn't work, he pulled his hands away and let out a grunt. 
Great. Well, if the listeners haven't heard or read about your Society of, St- Society of Steam trilogy yet, how would you describe the books and the story that you're telling? I mean, the easy and the, and the quick way is superhero steampunk. So I've, I've, I've put together sort of what I loved about, you know, classic superhero storytelling um, and, you know, what I think are the fundamental um, elements of steampunk. And, you know, to me, they work together nicely. Um, create a world where sort of, and so it's a story of a superhero team, um, both the dissolution of, a, of an old team of superheroes, the Society of Paragons, and sort of the corruption inside of them that tears them apart, and the birth of a new superhero team called the Society of Steam um, that, is sort of, that sort of rises up from the ashes of the, of the old team. Great. And so you mentioned comic books and superheroes. Are, are there specific uh, creators and in, in, in comics that you were inspired by? Are you a Jack Kirby fan? Or? Yeah, well, the third book is dedicated to him. So I'd say that's a, that's a giveaway right there. Um, <laughs> I actually met Jack Kirby. I got to interview him before he died back in like 1992. Um, so yeah, he's a, and he was a big influence on me really um, even before I started writing this series. I mean, just his, the way he looked, you know, I mean, here's, you know, this guy from Brooklyn who sort of grew up on the streets and, you know, was in World War II and then eventually went on to sort of create the fundamental uh, mythology of both the Marvel and the DC universes. So, um, you know, to me, that's, that's a pretty good track record for a, for a kid in, who grew up in, in the, streets of, uh, the streets of New York. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And, and, and his, his, uh, his artwork, I mean, if, if you're someone who, you know, that resonates with, it, it resonates so powerfully, it, it's even hard to, to sometimes even and describe that, as you said, it's kind of, you know, mythology. Yeah, I mean, he was really into it. I mean, you know, and, and I mean, I think, it, you know, he wanted to tell these stories of fathers and sons and, you know, great. So, I mean, the story I always tell about the interview was was uh, <laughs> was the point where he's like, you know, talking about the silver surfer, the character, you know, the, the guy who, who rides through space on a on a gleaming silver surfboard. And he's like, yeah, we saw these pictures of these guys out in California and they were riding on the ocean in a stick. And I was like, what if this guy rides on, out in space on a stick? And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> right? Great. He just had that way of taking these things and sort of, you know, I mean, I think that's his art style too. It's like simple but powerful, right? Yeah, and it, yeah. it adds a lot of depth in there. And, you know, I mean, you look at the Marvel movies now. I mean, I think a lot of, you know, the reinterpretation, like the Thor movies especially, I'd say, are really deeply based on, you know, that sense of grandeur that he created. And, sure, and, sure. Well, do you remember what gave you the original idea or inspiration for sitting down and writing the Society of Steam trilogy? Yeah, so I um, I was trying to figure out, you know, it's funny. I mean, originally it started out as a comic book pitch, unsurprisingly. Although I would say that um, the, the funny thing about the series is that where the books end at the end of the third book is really where I would have started if I had been writing it as a comic series. And there's a lot of reasons for that, just in terms of the way the media work and the type of storytelling you want to do in different mediums. But, um, but you know, I was a, I was a Burning Man in two, I mean, I started writing it in 2007 and I was a Burning Man in 2006. And when I was walking around, a bunch of people showed up. Um, there's a thing called the never was hall. It's H a U L it's a, it's a freestanding self-powered Victorian house. Um, that they've created in, over in Oakland, and they they tried it out a fair amount. Um, and it, it was at the time it was being pulled by a um, by a steam powered tractor. Um, 
kinetics that this group kinetic steamworks i mean i went back and figured out who all these folks were later right but anyway, this thing shows up being pulled by this beautiful tractor huge you know handcrafted tractor and then zipping all around it are these little um cars with uh propane powered steam engines and you know everybody's dressed up in victorian clothes and i was like okay this is kind of happening like i can kind of feel this and uh and then one of the guys I worked with, um, Peter Overstreet, who's an illustrator, a uh, great illustrator, has worked on a bunch of video game stuff. You know, I talked to him about it a little, and he's like, yeah, you know, if you're going to place this really, you know, 1860 to 1920s, your time period. And, um, you know, I started looking at the history, of, and I decided to place it in New York rather than London. And, you know, I got really inspired by the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge as sort of this metaphor um, for the period. And so that's how I ended up with 1880 which is where the book is set now. And so, you know, I, I ended up sort of being inspired and doing it in 1880s New York. And, um, you know, New York was a, you know, I, I, I couldn't imagine doing superhero, you know, like New York is so integrated to what, to the world of superheroes that I love. You know, you look at, at um, I mean, it goes back to Jack Kirby, right? And then also uh, just, you know, the Marvel 1960s stuff, which was a big inspiration for me as well. Sure, sure. Well, well, steampunk is obviously a genre that continues to grow in popularity. How do you interpret it, and, and what appealed to you about about that that time period and that that kind of um, uh, you know the kind of trappings of steampunk? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, right? I think when you look at a lot of other genres, um, there's a couple of things that are different, right? One is that most genres come out of some massively successful piece of uh, especially fiction genres come out of some massively successful book or movie that sort of inspires it, um, which steampunk hasn't really had. Um, so that's interesting. Um, and then, um, so, you know, I, I, I often struggle because I think that one thing is with steampunk, there's a lot of different interpretations of where the, of where the strength of the genre is. But for me, the more I got into it and the more the time I spent with it, the, the realization that I had is that, you know, the Victorian era is sort of the birthplace of, the, of our relationship with technology and, you know, sort of our modern um, cultural philosophy, right? Modern Western cultural philosophy, I think, was, was really, you know, we, we're, they're still, we're still living in their world to a, to a greater or lesser degree. Um, and... You know, that and, and so what I like about it is that when you look sort of backwards through the telescope, right, you know, they're looking towards the future where, you know, where they're going to own the world and they're going to be, you know, eating all these resources and taking over over the world itself. And we're looking back and seeing sort of this naive beginning, but also a simpler world. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the powers I think about it, one of the reasons I tend I mean, if you read that opening, right, I, I mean, that sort of a distillation of what people both what people like and dislike about my writing, which is, you know, the technical, um, you know, my, 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 the way that I move in, like the way that I sort of look at technical description, but I think, I think it's a simpler time, right? It's, it's objects that were crafted and that form followed function. You could look at what was in your hand and understand the intention of what it was supposed to do. Whereas, you know, you look at an iPhone now and if the thing wasn't turned on, you'd have no idea what to do with it. Right. Right. So interesting. About you know, I think part of the fascination of it is it's it's a metaphor that lets us sort of deconstruct our relationship with technology and 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 the world around us. Right. You you mentioned that you worked in the the digital space, working on various video games. What were you doing? Were you doing coding? Were you writing, designing? What what was that? So I've been a, yeah, I've been designing games for almost twenty years. Well, for more, yeah, actually for twenty years now. And uh, um. 
So mostly game design. Uh, I've been a producer, designer, uh, consultant. I've never been a coder. I mean, I've, I've written code, but I've never had a game that has my code in it. Uh, and yeah, I've written, I I did do some narrative writing. Um, It's interesting that my, I sort of have a, I mean, I don't mind doing writing for games. I just, I, my problem as a designer is that I'm much more interested in interaction and gameplay. And I find that people tend to get very married to narrative and, you know, from a, from a design game design perspective, narrative is one of the most, you know, fungible elements, right? It's like, it's like compared to everything else you have to do in a game, nothing's cheaper to change than story. Right. And as a writer, I know I can generate a lot of it fairly quickly. So, you know, I tend to tend to tell everybody like, wait, story, you know, my friend, my sta- my saying is story last, right? Get, get your, use story as a way to have the interactions of your experience make sense. Gotcha. And, and, and I'm curious, I mean, obviously this is a writing and, and, and books podcast, but I'm a gamer myself. What, what games have you been playing in the last year or two that really uh, impressed you either on, you know, a mobile device or, or, you know, a, an Xbox or place. Yeah. I mean the last, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I've been, my focus has been social mobile <laughs> the last few years. The last big Xbox game I played is red dead redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'm Ken, Ken Levine and I, the Bioshock guy have been friends for, since we were kids. So, you know, I'm, I'll be, I'll be the first step to play playing Bioshock, uh, infinite. No, without a doubt. Um, yeah, I mean, on the on the on the mobile side, I mean, this I love stuff. It, what if I play? I mean, for me, it's it's so tied to you know, it's it's so tied to a means to an end. I mean, um, I love. There's a game called um, Punch. What is it? Is it Punch Quest? Um, yeah, I love. There's Punch Quest, Happy Street. Like, there's a lot of stuff on the mobile devices that I've been playing the heck right. out of. I just played. Um, oh, there was a narrative one that I really liked. Uh, it was about fire, and I can't remember the name of it off of my off the top of my head that I picked up off the game store. And the and the Walking Dead game I thought was great. Uh, right. The Walking Game from Telltale, mm-hmm. yeah, that is really really good. So, had you always wanted to write a novel prior to sitting down and working on the Falling Machine, the first book in the Society of Steam? Only since I was twelve years old. <laughs> <laughs> so you got yeah. sidetracked into working on games. Yeah, I mean, actually, I had I had gotten into Clarion West, and I was going to go out uh, to do Clarion West when I got my first game industry job. So I had this real crossroads moment in my twenties where uh, where I where I had to pick, and I had been working on writing. I mean, I would I was working at a government. I was working as a consultant to the Mint, to the San Francisco Mint, and I you know my job would be I would get up. I'd have to be at the office at seven thirty. I'd get out at four thirty. I'd go home. And at some point in the evening, I'd start writing, and I'd write till about one in the morning, getting about five hours a night. And I did that probably for a couple of years. Um, so when I got the game job, I was like, okay, I'm doing creative work here. Um, maybe I can go out and have some fun and have a social life. Um, and I also felt like the, the thing that I ran into was at the time, and this was sort of you know the previous era, the end of the of the of the well, sort of the cyberpunk era, right? The end of the cyberpunk era. Um, I also felt like my, I was right. I wasn't writing from experience. I was writing books that were sort of reinterpretation of themes that I had read in other books. And so, like my other goal was to sort of go out and do stuff. Right. For, you know, 
So, so, uh, so what, what were you writing during those two years when you said you came home at, at you know, you got off of work at 4.30? Were you working on short fiction novels and when you said you were kind of reinterpreting what you had read? Yeah, a lot of short stories because it was still the era where you would build your career by getting short stories into magazines first. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, analog. And, and I was pretty close. I mean, I didn't get a lot. I didn't get stuff published, but I was at that. There was a sort of a hierarchy, right? You would, you would send out your stories. You'd start getting notes from editors, Right. And that's what Clarion would have been a supercharge for. Right. At that point, you know, the editors and then, you you know, that was how that was how you got in. Right. It was right. a lot. There were a lot fewer authors, a lot less published. So you really had to sort of build that that connection. I was already getting feedback from editors like, you know, I would take this if you did this. Right. Or, you know, this is great. Send me what keep sending me what you're doing. I'm not going to take this one, but I want to see everything you're working on. That kind of right. stuff. And and so then you got the job in the in the um, in the uh, game uh, industry mm-hmm. uh, in the digital industry, and I'm assuming from the way that you're talking that you maybe put writing on the back burner for a while. Is that correct? Yeah, I really did. I mean, I focused on that. Um, I focused on the game stuff. I mean, there was some narrative work there. I was writing backstory. I mean, I still have some stuff I did for them. I wrote backstories, or you know, I'd write. The, the short science fiction piece that would go in the front of the little game or other stuff like that or in the manual. Um, but I wasn't really focused on, on, on narrative, on fiction. Yeah. And, and, you know, honestly, I, I had been working on this book um, <clears throat> on a novel and I just had stalled out about three quarters of the way through. Gotcha. So, gotcha. yeah. So, so what was, what was the epiphany uh, of, uh, around sitting down and working on the following machine? Was it what you related earlier of seeing this, um, uh, um, this mechanical house at, at, at Burning Man? Well, I knew I wanted to write a book. I, I, I come to this point where it's like, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to have a career as an author, I'm, I've reached the point in my life that either I'm going to do this or I'm going to have it as a regret that I, you know, for the rest of my life. I mean, I don't, people do get started in their 40s and 50s, but you know, I felt like you know, I was in my late, I was in my late, getting into my late 30s at that point, and I was like, okay, if this is going to happen, is this something I'm going to do? I need to get rolling now. And, and there's a thing that I think that happens with fiction, with, with being an author, where, you know, the, the point at which, you know, it's like college. The point at which you start writing is your graduating class to some degree. So, you know, like Gail Carriger and Sherry Priest and um, Mary Robinette Kowal, those are all people that I know because those are the people that I started publishing with. Right. Right. And and so I think you also want to do that where you feel like those are your actual peers. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and that makes life a little easier and a little more um, fun. So so I'm I'm just curious. I don't mean to I don't mean to pry too much. I, I just um you know so so what what was the kind of decision making process like for you? So you kind of started feeling like you know I I I don't want to get into my 40s and 50s. So so what happened from there until you sat down and started working on the following machine? I mean, I think for me the big a big change. Well, one I had started reading. You know, I I had been working on re- breaking into comics for the five years prior to that. Mm-hmm. So I had been doing a lot of narrative work. I just been, you know, I just was sort of thinking that, you know, comics, that was the mid 2000s. So comics were, you know, 2003 through 2007, the movie deals were coming through fast and furious. The comic movies were taking off. There was money around. People were interested in um, new properties. And then really what happened in 2007 was I had gotten a deal with Top Cow to do a book with a friend of mine. And when the economy crashed, a lot of the money deflated from there and they canceled the book and said they were only going to work on existing IP. Right. 
um, only on existing characters, nothing new. And that's not interesting to me. Like I, I, you know, I have a lot of friends in comics who they want nothing more out of life to, than to write Batman. And my interest in writing actual Batman is about zero. Mm-hmm. Like if they came to me and said, Hey man, we want you to do Batman. We love you. I, I would, I would, you know, I'd figure something out, but my, but, but my goal as a writer is not to build, to build, to, I I worked at Cartoon Network as a creative director in 2000, 2001. I've gotten to play with Batman. I've gotten to play with, you know, Powerpuff Girls, all, you know, all the stuff that was the big toys back then. And the problem I have with it is it's never yours, right? Like Batman will never, like I can play with Batman. I can hang out with Batman, but Batman will never love me. Sure. So, so, you know, that, that's, so that was so. So my interest in writing comics that were for existing light IP was was really was really limited. And I thought, and I saw, you know, I mean, books were a way that I could um, get back into creating my own worlds and my own characters. Sure, sure. So, what is your writing process like? Do you outline extensively, or are you more of an organic writer? Yeah, I don't know if I believe. I mean, I know that people claim that they're organic writers. That was the, that was why I never finished the previous novel. Like, I'm not. I'm not an organic writer in any way. Like I, I don't, I, you know, in fact, like I, I ended up reading Robert McKee's storybook because I felt it had a lot of relevance to the comic stuff as well. And, um, I, you know, I just started out and like, he was like, he was like, look, you don't get one of the things he writes about in the back of the book where he gets the actual, you know, he's like, whatever, 90% of it is really sort of philosophy. And the last 10% of the book is technique. Right. right. But one thing he says at the back of the book is, don't write a word of dialogue until you've outlined your entire story, right? And made sure that you've created something worth telling, and, you know, and then dialogue will turn into your um, dialogues, the treat that you get, right? Because we're all, you know, like most of us who are good at writing are good at dialogue. We have an ear for it, right? I mean, I think some people probably don't, but, but, you know, most of us can at least personally enjoy that. Right. And, holding that out as the carrot at the end of the stick and saying, you don't get to do it. That was really motivating for me. Right. Right. And that was how, so that was really a big part of it. So I ended up, so I ended up shifting into being an outliner. Um, and that's just become a key part of everything I do now. You know, I don't have to follow it slavishly and, it, mm-hmm. and it's built as I go along, but knowing when I open up a new chapter in, in Scrivener that I know what I'm supposed to be writing about or what the emotional goal or the narrative goal or the, your goals are it helps a lot. And and how was that shift for you? Because you you said that you got three fourths of the way through this novel and had it kind of stall out on you. Did, was it something that you had to kind of adjust to of 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 basically plotting out every every last detail before you started working? Well, I don't do every last detail, right? I mean, it's about it's about breaking it down into beats that sure, are sure. that are that are motivating. Yeah. So, you know, no, it was great. It was like a revelation, right? Suddenly I was interested. And I and for me anyway, like I knew there were parts that I was excited about writing, so it's it's very motivational, right? Like, oh, now I get to do this scene, right? Like in the first book, I mean, I opened pretty strong with the book with the battle on the Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, I opened up with the uh with the battle on the Brooklyn Bridge in the first one, but there's a huge set piece that ends book 2. Or what I think of as a set piece, right? It takes place in a certain location, and I and I have a good sense of what the stakes are, and and you know, and I was, I mean, the whole book too is about the joy of getting to the point where I had earned the right to to write that that sequence, and it was all, you know, it was a lot of fun for me. That's great. Well, what books or authors have you read in the past couple of years that really stood out for you and that you would recommend? 
Mm. Um, well, obviously, I'm a big fan of uh, of Gail Carriger's work. Um, you know, the, the the parasol protectorate stuff. I mean, I think she's just got a great sense of 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 fun in that. Um, I'm trying to think, recent stuff. Yeah. Oh, um, Ready Player One. I love. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember the name of the author of that one. Uh, I know what you're talking about. I I can't think of the author yep. either. Um, I love uh, Ernest Klein. Is that it? Okay. Yeah, that's a yeah. great book. Um, also, uh, they just came out with a movie of it. Um, guy who writes. Dies at the end. I think is a great a great book. Oh, Paolo Bacigalupi, also amazing writer. Uh, love the Wind Up Girl. Um, Scott Westerfeld, huge, huge, huge influence on me. I mean, the fact that the fact I mean it was a really you know I liked him a lot and I read the his stuff and then he like I didn't know he was going into steampunk when I went in. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was like, oh man, how do I compete with you know like here's a guy that I like I really look up to and I think is. Um, amazing um now he's on my turf you know and i think you know <laughs> his books obviously you know he got his books are amazing um what else am i thinking of um there's one other guy uh that i wanted to mention um hold on a second let me think of uh i'm gonna this is me typing his name in um <laughs> this is Tay morgan another guy i love and his new fantasy series uh the steel remains stuff is is great like i love i love his stuff and uh say his name again i didn't catch it what i, I didn't catch his name can you say it again sure richard k morgan okay got it Alter carbon books uh and Alter carbon was sort of a noir and then he did um he did broken angels and and woken fury so was it the same character in the same world that sort of switched genres in each novel the takeshi kovacs books which i think are great um you know, and George Martin is a big influence. I love the first three of the um, Game of Thrones stuff. And obviously, like, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll stick through it to the end. I think the series is, uh, you know, he's a great writer. I mean, I think um, I'll be interested to see that when the series is done, whether he goes back and sort of re-edits them. Because <laughs> I got to now, it's hard to deny without, without any, uh, taking away anything from a guy who's obviously one of the kings of the industry right now. You know, I think the books have become as much, whether he likes it or not, whether I like it or not, the books have become as much about the publishing schedule as they have about the, about the narrative. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan, and I think I've read the series two or three times, and I agree with you. I think that, I think that, um, I don't know. I mean, of course, it's not my place to say, given, you know, like you said, he's a giant, but, but I think the story kind of got away from him, um, in my opinion. Well, I mean, my feeling is this, I think, I think, you know, with my own experience, right, you want a world that's deeper and richer than the story that you're telling, right? Because the, the idea that the tapestry is larger than the, than the, than the vision that you have inside of it is, I think, always really compelling to the reader, right? That, 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 yeah. that you can walk off the edge of this world, off the edge of the, the frame that you're read, that you're experiencing it in, and that you could imagine that there's more going on outside the edges than in your head. Sure. And I, I think for the first three Game of Thrones book, it really felt that way. And somewhere in the last two novels, I feel like he's put everything, all the backstory onto the page. Yeah. yeah. Every, I know who's everybody. I know when I meet a new character, I know who, what their, the, the battle that their uncle lost, <laughs> right. That, that made them angry so that they want to hurt Tyrion. I don't, and I, it's not that I don't care about that. It's that if that doesn't feel sort of like intuited, by the, by the, you know, uh, let me, let, you know, going back to game theory, right? Game design stuff. 
the one thing that I've learned over the years is that if if I feel personal, like one thing I, I think is an important trick or or technique, let's not call it a trick, is that if you tell the user what to do, they 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 hate it. But if they discover what to do, even though that's what you intended, and they own it and they love it. Yeah. And I think that's what the Martin books have done for me is that they feel at this point as if I don't get to come, you know, I don't get to intuit that, oh, maybe this guy has some bad blood with Tyrion. He's telling me exactly where that bad blood is coming from. And I'm sort of like, okay, then I don't really care. It's not really mine. I didn't really discover or, or um, explore this world myself. I was led by the hand through the world. Sure, like, sure. And that's, uh, you know, look, it's a tough thing when you're writing um, – more than anything else, when you're writing, at some point, you just have to let go and let your instinct guide you. Um, because no matter how good you get at it, the, you're never, you can't be the writer and the reader simultaneously. You know? Sure, sure. So, so given, your, given your experience with the Society of Steam trilogy and, and, um, and writing it and having it published um, with these beautiful covers by Pierre, um, what advice do you have for aspiring writers? It's, you know, it's a tough, tough time. I mean, well, I mean, I think it depends on what you want to get out of it. Right. I mean, a lot of people want to write. Um, I feel really lucky that I got in when I did, because I had a dream of being on a bookshelf in Barnes and Noble and that dream came true. And I think the window for that dream to come true is pretty much over. I mean, you know, one, there's a thousand people or more who read my book because it was, you know, blown out at Borders, right? Yeah. When Borders went out of business, right? And that was bad for, for me in a number of ways. And I think good in some senses that people read the book. Um, but, you know, the market is so fundamentally, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that people are out there reading and that there still are readers, but it's not the same as it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago. So I think you really have to know what you want to get out of it and you have to know what you have, you want to offer the audience. Um, and you have to know, yeah, and, but, but I think the first thing is more important, right? Who are you writing for? Um, what's the craft that you're, that you're looking to build? And, and are you willing to be patient and build it as a craft? Because it's not, it's not something, you know, and that's the danger of self-publishing, right? Is that you can publish anything, anything. It's easy to get it out there. And, you know, you need, you know, so, and I don't think it's a mistake to get your early stuff out there. It's fine to put whatever you want on Amazon. Um, you know, just commit to writing the next one and the next one and the next one. Sure, sure. So, so what are you working on now? Do you have a follow-up plan for the Society of Steam? Um, well, so I spent, you know, five years, you know, I'm not, one thing I've learned about myself is that like, unlike some authors, right, I don't, I don't, I don't shed a lot of short stories and other fiction while I'm working on a large body of work. So, I mean, you know, it ended up being that for five years, I worked on nothing but Society of Steam. Um, I published a short Christmas piece in that world, uh, the end of last year and, uh, you know, I'll be back right with that world, but I'm also exploring some other, um, other concepts now. So I'm not sure yet. Um, I think what's going to happen with society of steam is I'm going to do a series of short pieces that are going to connect together. Um, you know, they'll seem a little disparate right now, and then they're going to connect together in a way that will set up the next, uh, series of the book. That that's my plan. Um, how long that takes. I just, I just want to sort of take, I'm going to take this year and sort of work on it in a more big picture abstract way. And then um, I think in, you know, next year I'll start back into the series in earnest. Great. Well, where can people find you online? 
Um, so the home of my home is andrewpmayer.com. And that's the best way to find me. And I'm Andrew Mayer without the P on Twitter. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Andrew Mayer, author of the Society of Steam Trilogy. The latest book, Power Under Pressure, is available in bookstores now. So check it out. Andrew, thanks for doing the podcast. Well, once again, thanks for having me on. I always enjoy it and I, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.